The world is getting older, not in planetary terms, but in terms of an aging population. The United Nations states that a quarter of the world's population is over the age of 60 and increases about 3% each year. Experts point to the impact the planet of increasingly elderly people will have on healthcare systems around the world, but there's also an economic impact as well. Since 1979, productivity in the United States has climbed steadily, while the employment to population ratio has fallen. There are fewer people actually working. Much of this dichotomy can be explained by steady improvements in output, notably where technology has had an impact. It's also why average wages have remained stagnant while economic growth has continued, but that may be about to change. The manufacturing industry in the U.S. is in the midst of a silver tsunami. Aging workers who are retiring at the rate of 10,000 a day, a rate projected to continue until the year 2030. The industry employs nearly 9% of the American workforce, so such a loss of talent, knowledge and experience will have a severe impact on the economy unless something is done. Raising wages in the short term may help, but it can trigger its own negative consequences, like inflation. I'm Chris Henry, and you're listening to Ahead of the Curve, a podcast series produced by Gerent, a gold-level Salesforce implementation and consultation company. In this episode, we'll examine the impact and cost of a retiring workforce and some possible solutions that'll help sustain overall economic growth. Some of those solutions can be implemented quickly, but others will take years to bear fruit. Our guests include David Morley, Gerent's VP of Manufacturing Practice, and Charlie Camiso, VP of Human Resources for Niaset Corporation, a global leader in the manufacture of specialty chemicals. This silver tsunami is a complex issue for manufacturing, but it boils down to a couple of challenges. How to retain the knowledge and experience of the retiring workers, and how to find their replacements. Here's David Morley. I think it's starting to be realized as one of the largest problems in manufacturing. There are a lot of people retiring from the, I'm going to talk about generational names. So the boomer generation is the folks that are retiring and they're retiring in their millions. And they have a ton of tribal knowledge in their heads. So there's a two threat problem. One is to gather that information and make it available to the next folks in a trainable fashion. And the second part is to find people to replace them. And in what roles do you replace them? Are they the same roles or or is it an elevation of the role along with digital transformation? The idea of of an aging demographic is nothing new. I mean, those who've chosen to look around have seen this coming for several decades. Manufacturing has to have known that it's been coming for years. So what has the industry been doing? Anything to prepare and, and solve for this? Yeah. In, uh, so in some cases, and I've been involved directly with some of those initiatives, companies have recognized that. So when, you know, post-war, a lot of boomers went into manufacturing. It was a boom time at the time. So there was a lot of interest and there was availability and folks would go and be in a job for years and expect to retire out of those jobs. That mindset has changed somewhat with the millennial generation. There's the fact that they'll have postgraduate, they will have five jobs before they settle into their career moving forward. 
there's an expectation that there's more interesting and elevated positions available for them. And unless you have managed to put those in place, it's going to be, it's going to be a problem to A, attract those folks and B, keep those folks in place. Well, that's interesting because I think there are probably some myths that, that exist around manufacturing. Here's a couple, low pay. Um, you know, it's dirty work. It's, uh, you know, unstable employment. They're always talking about layoffs in manufacturing. Which ones does the industry need to tackle and change first and how would they do it? So if you look at the, the folks working on the shop floor right now, there is no availability. People are not applying for those jobs. Rates, hourly rates have gone as high as I've ever heard of them. So starting rates in manufacturing plants in the Midwest are in the $20 range with full benefits straight out of high school. That's kind of new. When I was, I'm, I'm, I'm out of manufacturing for three years now, but mid-management, we were retaining people on $70,000 to $100,000 a year. At positions above mid-management, sales, traveling sales folks up to general management were quite a bit higher than most people would expect. But having the pay rates in place is one thing. Being able to keep them when, when they're there is, is a second thing. So making those roles more interesting, making them more inclusive, having a more open culture, being involved in the community, all of these things play into the minds of folks coming into the workforce today. So where's the role for technology in all of this? And, and I guess I'm thinking particularly of all of that tribal knowledge that could be heading out the door unless it's captured in some fashion. Yeah, I think encouraging folks that are planning to retire to become part of the future of the business by helping document that information and making it available in, you know, in a format that can be digitized, that can be accessible remotely for remote employees, that can be accessible through a central system for people that are in the, in the building, making sure that folks have the right training for the right procedures, whether it's a, just a business procedure or a manufacturing procedure, You've got to capture all of that and make it accessible and encourage people through rewards to take the training and move forward. Charlie Camiso was on the front line of this issue. As the VP of Human Resources at Niaset, part of his concern is where he'll find new employees and how he'll retain them. He's also very concerned about the loss of decades of tribal knowledge. I think it's most definitely impacts uh, the more skilled manufacturing roles, although it is it is everywhere, but the skilled roles are always harder to find. And, and I think at least in, in most industries that I've associated with, the silver tsunami um, is really going to wipe out a lot of the tribal knowledge that's um, going to be a challenge uh, for organizations to capture before the employees leave and to replace after they leave. Yeah. Now, how, how significant is that tribal knowledge, as you call it? that's going to be heading out the door with these uh, retiring workers? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, this tribal knowledge is very significant. The amount of that tribal knowledge in organizations at all levels is high, but it, it, I think the effect on the blue collar jobs will be the highest. You know, the work instructions can assist new employees in running equipment and processes, but it's not a good substitute for on-the-job experience. And, you know, the, the example I like to give to some of my, uh, my coworkers and, you know, friends is, you know, the analogy of driving a car. Usually a person has to take a class to understand how to drive a car driver's ed. That mm-hmm. could be the work instruction and, and classroom training. But that person also needs several years of driving to become an expert. And I try to tell people, imagine what would happen if we all forgot how to drive and then hit the roads tomorrow. You know, how safe would that be? And that's what I see the industry is facing with the silver tsunami. 
is there is there a role that software technology can play here in in capturing as much of this tribal knowledge as possible before it heads before it goes out the door? <laughs> I, I think software can capture training, but I would say probably only, you know, 20% at best is where software can come in. I think there's been some exciting developments in uh, uh, virtual reality. Uh, You know, in the chemical industry where I'm based, a lot of the pump assembly and reassembly now can be actually trained in a virtual reality or VR uh, process. And that'll help. But again, I don't think there's a, a, there there hasn't been a, a perfect solution for just that years of experience and tribal knowledge. Yeah. Well, one of the problems, I mean, I would say that there are basically two facets to this silver tsunami. Number one is the employees who are actually going to be leaving uh, and taking knowledge and experience uh, with them. The other aspect is replacing them. You know, you're obviously going to replace them with younger workers who are going to want to come and work somewhere where there is a level of technology that they have been used to since birth practically. Do you think that there is a cultural bias that manufacturers need to deal with that in in order to attract young workers that kind of equates manufacturing with, you know, poorly paid blue collar jobs? Unfortunately, in the U.S., I think that is the case. And I think it stems from having several generations who've been told through education and their parents and, and peers that they need a college degree to be successful and live, you know, the American dream. And at the same time, you know, the amount of those blue collar jobs have been transferred overseas. And I think, you know, the the technology aspect of of the younger employees grabbing a wrench, for example, and rebuilding a pump by hand may not be as attractive as as using a electronic device to uh, search something on uh, Google. So there's a disconnect that maybe some of the education systems in the U.S. could address by including more tech or vocational study programs. Um, a lot of those programs have have eroded or disappeared or been cut from a lot of the secondary education in the United States. And what, what, what at least what I find in my uh, search for employees is that the tech skills aren't there anymore. Charlie's point about a lack of technical courses and programs in education is a critical one. More and more often, manufacturers and tech companies are creating affiliation programs with colleges and, in some cases, universities in the U.S. Charlie points to Germany as one country that has the right formula. I think we could look to Germany as maybe a, a place that has best practices where they've created a, apprenticeship programs and, and tech schools to help uh, develop ready now workers for the industry and the, and the local communities where, they're, where those uh, schools are located. I, I think successful organizations have done that. And, and there's, there's a good history for that. You know, in the, you know, the, the days of Eastman Kodak, they used to uh, partner with some of the uh, State University of New York or SUNY schools, tech schools to be able to create a pipeline of workers for uh, chemicals, you know, pipe fitters, mechanics, electricians, more of the trades, and pretty much create help created those programs with those local tech schools and then um, pulled those students into their workforce, in many cases with guaranteed jobs with, you know, at the time, which was a, a premier employer. No, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure you guys have used you know, job fairs in order to attract new workers. And, and we've just spoken about the link with the community colleges, for example, to enhance uh, the manufacturing profile. What else do you think manufacturers could do to change this idea, this attitude that working in a factory, you know, you're not smart enough to work anywhere else? 
Mm-hmm. I think, you know, over the last decade or so, a lot of manufacturers have recognized that there is an issue and have maybe struggled to embrace how to change the organization. You know, in the past, maybe there was a, a larger union presence in some of these facilities where there was a, a apprenticeship program perhaps built in. But with the, the decline in unions here in, in the United States, I think it's really important. Maybe the first step would be for organizations to implement a highly defined and organized employee mentoring program slash training program and invest in those training programs targeted to your company's needs. Yeah. Say a little bit more about that. You know, how would you go about doing something like that? Sure, sure. So I think most Experts will say that 70% of learning happens on the job. That's the hands-on training. You know, an additional 20% is usually working, you know, with others or watching people and then 10% from work instructions. I think organizations should identify the critical skills and develop a plan that really leverages that 70-20-30 model on how to train workers on those skills. And there's several ways of doing that. And there's several apprenticeship programs and, and processes out there and, probably a really good business model for people to get in who are maybe more entrepreneurial to help companies do that. But I think, you know, some real hands-on ways of doing that is is, is really leveraging the, the skills of the employees you currently have who may be close to retiring and helping, having them help create this program and be involved in that, that training of new employees. At one time in the past, Charlie and David Morley worked together at a machining company. Charlie explains that finding machinists was always a problem, so they created a plan to ensure a steady flow of new workers. There was a company in Wisconsin that, that was a machining company that Dave and I worked uh, for, or it was one of our companies in our portfolio. And that company had a hard time finding machinists. So what we had done from the HR standpoint and, and the business standpoint is we partnered with the local secondary school. And when the factory put an addition on, we, we built classrooms so that the local secondary school kids could come in and do their do their academics in the morning. And then in the afternoon, they would go in and work in the factory and, and learn how to be machinists. And that was a model that was really uh, uh, taken from the German model. And it was successful for not only our business, but other businesses in the area because the young students would come in and, and in some cases they'd go into machining, other cases they would go into uh, some chemical works, in other cases they would go into other uh, skilled trade roles. But uh, what we found was, you know, providing that opportunity, that space really increased our pipeline of, of ready now candidates. And so they were coming out of high school and they were employable. Yeah, they they were they would spend their junior and and or senior year in this program, and oftentimes they were ready to start. Uh, you know, right after graduation from high school, they could come in and start working. And you know, some of the advantages of that was they would be making fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year out of high school, um, have no college debt, which tends to be a problem here in the United States with a lot of a lot of students. And by the time they, they'll hit 50, if they've done it right, they'll have some uh, very um, positive uh, choices that they get to make. Yeah. College debt, uh, the last time I looked at numbers in, in the U.S., was something around $2 trillion. And I, I may be wrong there, but it was an astronomical number. And the likelihood of college graduates paying that off over their lifetime is, while, while they may have to, it's certainly going to impede their ability to grow their financial assets, especially uh, for retirement. 
Absolutely. I, I don't know the, the exact numbers myself, but I think that tr- that two trillion is is probably directionally correct. And I think, you know, you, know, you talk about we talked a little bit about the, uh, you know, the stigma of working blue collar jobs. I think we'll see with these current generations, the millennials and the Generation Z's to kind of use those phrases that those cohorts, uh, I think they're, they are recognizing that that the fallacy of just having a college degree is the key to for success isn't isn't necessarily true, especially coupled with that crippling college debt. David Morley puts a great deal of emphasis on the idea of creating roles for new employees that they will embrace. He's done it himself and he's seen how it can work. You know, my view on bringing new people into the organization is to treat them as the intelligent people they are. They come in educated, they come in with new ideas, they're more in tune with technology. So having them work on a path towards, if you're a global company, international projects, having them be a lead on a development project, having them be a lead on a new product development project, something that's more interesting and probably more rewarding to them and give them that exposure to senior leadership team, give them exposure to the strategic planning goals and where we are year to date. Exposing that information through communities is not something everybody is comfortable doing, but I can tell you it really engages those folks and uh, keeps them engaged for the future. We had a management development program at a company that I work for, and a lot of the people were leaving because they were being treated as admins, basically that. Mm. And, you know, I had folks go to China, I had folks go to Brazil and, and South America and Europe. And I'm friend, you know, I, 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 I'm still in touch with all of those folks because they appreciated the opportunity. It was probably the first time they'd been treated like an adult with responsibility beyond just themselves at work. And it showed a lot of um, difference in the way they performed as individuals. What about those young people coming out of high school, college, community college, university, maybe, you know, they've grown up in front of a screen of some kind since <laughs> since birth. They want a job and a role where they can continue to use that kind of technology. So it's going to be incumbent on manufacturing to find or to create a level of technology to attract them to begin with. Yeah, I think communicating how manufacturing has changed. So CNC machinery has been a part of manufacturing for a long time now. 3D printing has been a part of manufacturing for 20 years now. The difference between the initial ceramic 3D printers and the printers they have now, where they don't just have have form, but they can have function as well, I think elevates the technology level. They're not just boring old machine houses anymore. These are companies that are hopefully looking to sell product on value, looking for new markets, looking to break into new white spaces, bring in new products. So having young people involved in new product development, in strategic planning, in acquisition activities, it's all possible. And a lot of those things were not as open and functional in the past. I think there's a a lot of opportunities with more interesting positions And if companies are prepared to use young people to the most capacity, that that's where they would be. And I think if you can communicate that, not beyond the salary, I think that's where you'll keep the people. That view is a distinct departure from the past when wages were the primary attraction for workers in manufacturing. How many strikes at the big three automakers over the decades have been about wages, for example? 
But Charlie Camiso doesn't think salary levels hold the ultimate key to replacing lost talent. I asked him if there was pressure building in manufacturing to raise salaries in order to find new employees and even keep existing ones. Well, I, I think there is to a certain extent, we're talking about really scarcity of resources here, right? Uh, mm -hmm. You know, skilled workforce uh, and what is rare is valuable. And, I, I, you know, I think wages is, I think, only a, a portion of it. I mean, I, I think that kind of lends itself into that old school blue collar mentality where all the jobs are homogeneous. And, and if someone pays me 50 cents more, I'll go work for them. You know, I think a lot of companies now have realized that wage and benefits are, are important and maybe at the beginning of someone's career, the most important. But then, you know, quality of life and quality of, of the working environment for, for a more tenured employee, I think, takes precedent at a certain level. What do you see the future here? I mean, I mean when, when do you think uh, this problem could be solved or even solvable? Well, I, I think the problem is definitely solvable. There, there's, probably, it's, there's probably not one silver bullet from my, uh, my, my feeling, but I, I, I believe that if you know, there is a concerted effort with industry to help educate and help create the, the tech school roles and actually show potential workers that, hey, you know, working in a factory, you, know, you can make six figures. Uh, and you can have a very flexible schedule, in some cases, half the month off. In, in many of the chemical industries, there's a 12-hour schedule that uh, you know, employees work half the week, and then the other half of the week, they're off. You know, those can be some of the things that help uh, dispel the blue collar is, you know, is a role only for someone who can't get a job anywhere else. And I think as the recognition of these you know, traditionally blue-collared or skilled industry roles are, are valuable and can create maybe even a better version of the you know, American dream than perhaps working in a call center, which sometimes, you know, is considered a white collar job. Um, I, I think that'll help dispel some of this rumor and help, you know, create a path for uh, more employees to, to see the these skilled trade jobs as being uh, um, valuable. What about job sharing? That could be leveraged to um, convince retiring folks not to retire completely. Yeah, I, I think, you know, a good apprenticeship or mentoring program will include a, a, a more senior employee. And, and I think it is a great way to keep um, more skilled people who potentially could retire into the workforce. You know, I know in, in the chemical industry, we tend to put a lot of people in consultancies. So as they retire and leave the, the full-time workforce, we do capture and, and, and bring them back into a part-time role to help mentor their replacements or, or people doing similar work. And I think it's a good way of you know, keeping those employees who want to stay working at an older age or a later time in their life. Um, it gives, it'll help give them some value in what they're doing as well. One final point, and it's about robotics. Manufacturing and robotics appear to be a marriage made on the factory floor, especially if your view is that robots will fill the gaps left by retiring workers. That's a view that's being dismissed more and more these days. Technology like robotics can result in the creation of new jobs, new roles, and new functions for employees. That's David Morley's view. Well, it's true, it, it will shift the dynamic, but what will happen is that the the roles will change and become uh, and, and appear elsewhere in a in a business. So a business grows by keeping its uh, existing customers happy. It grows by analyzing and controlling pricing. It grows by launching new products. It grows by not losing customers to to whatever type of attrition there is, whether it's um, the technology went out of date or the customer wasn't happy with the service. 
And then eventually you, you've got a growth company. And if you look at most manufacturing companies in, the North, in North America, which I've done for most of my working life, you'll find that elements of that are not being supported properly because there aren't enough resources. So instead of hiring laborers and people to sweep the floor, you may have a robot that sweeps the floor. You might have a system that monitors and automates maintenance, but there's still maintenance and service. There's still the analysis of contracts that doesn't get done properly where price increases are missed or opportunities to be more competitive are missed. That's where the roles will appear. So when we started moving jobs from North America to Mexico because the parts were more competitive and that was the way the company saw as remaining competitive, we refilled the factory with products at higher value and could pay better wages. And so the fear of I'm losing my job because the product's being moved or they're automating the machinery, you have to communicate that with your employees and get to the point where you've got a trust level between your employees and the strategy and the information that you're giving them so they don't start looking around. So you want them to be happy at work. You want them to be satisfied at work. You need them to be able to look after their families. All of those things are absolutely central to the American way of life. And if you as a company are not paying attention to that, you'll become uncompetitive as an employer. The so-called silver tsunami presents an enormous challenge for the manufacturing industry. But the future doesn't have to be gloomy. Technology's role will help a great deal. However, much can be achieved through partnerships between industry and educational institutions to bring in new workers. That's the critical first step. Then creating roles for new employees that challenge, engage, and satisfy them will also help to seal the deal. Not easy, but no one says it will be. The key is, it's doable. You've been listening to Ahead of the Curve, produced by Gerent in cooperation with Salesforce. Our thanks to Charlie Camiso, Global Head of HR for Nyaset Corporation, for his contribution. And thanks also to David Morley, Gerent's VP of Manufacturing Practice, for his comments. Our technical producer is Dave Grine from the Acme Podcasting Company in Toronto. I'm Chris Henry. Thanks for joining us.